we are starting a new series. We're going to be in this series uh, all summer. It's called Outcry, a study of 12 Psalms of David. Now, David penned a lot more than 12 Psalms. But for most of the Psalms, we don't know the historical situation that gave rise to the Psalm. But for 13 of David's Psalms, he tells us what was going on in his life at the time that he wrote the Psalm, which is very helpful. Now, why aren't we doing a 13-week series then? It's because uh, two of the Psalms seems to be addressing the same situation. So we're, we're going to be in a, a 12-week series. And the reason we're calling it Outcry is because we get to listen in as David cries out to God from his situation. And sometimes he's in desperate need. And God, deliver me, please. I am in a desperate place. And sometimes he is saying, God, thank you for having delivered me in the past. I am so grateful to have you in my life. And sometimes he's just saying, God, I am going to uh, declare to myself and anyone who's listening that you are on your throne and because you're sovereign and wise and good and faithful to your children, the whole world's going to be okay. One of the most important things for us spiritually is to know how to bring our inner life to the Lord. It is so important to know how to cry out to God in your situation. In fact, the reason we have the book of Psalms, certainly a, a primary reason, is so that we have some examples to go to, uh, models for us on how to cry out to God. So uh, the church has captured through, uh, the Psalms were written over the course of 800 years and they were compiled, and they were copied, and they were preserved for us as uh, models of how to cry out to the Lord. And so we have uh, a lot to learn from David about what it looks like to bring our inner life to the Lord. And, and as we learn to do that in a healthy way, uh, do that in faith, boy, it, it's some of the best stuff for us spiritually. There are three basic types of psalms. Uh, the first is a praise psalm, and the praise psalm just declares, God, you're on your throne, and as a result, I, uh, the whole world is going to turn out okay. That's a praise psalm. The second type of psalm is a lament, and in a lament, the psalmist is in a desperate situation and cries out to God for help. God, if you don't help me, I don't know what's going to happen. And then the third kind of psalm is a thanksgiving psalm in which the psalmist is looking back and thanking God for having been faithful and having delivered him or her from, uh, from the problem. And so sometimes a lament is exactly what we need because we find ourselves right now in a place of need and we're saying, God, come rescue us. And sometimes... What we need to do is look back and remember and thank God for his past faithfulness. And sometimes we just need to say, God, I'm just declaring you're on your throne. And so despite the politics and despite what I'm reading on the news, uh, you are guiding history to a great resolution. And I'm, I'm okay. 
because you're on the throne. We're going to look at Psalm 3 today. That's our first psalm, so turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Psalm 3. This is a lament. David is in a sticky situation, and he needs God to to deliver him. Psalm chapter 3. So here, this psalm has a superscript. And this is part of the original psalm. It's not, uh, it has not been put there by modern uh, translators. This is a part of the original psalm. So let me read the superscript. A psalm of David, so we know the author, when he fled from Absalom his son, so we know the situation. Well, if you go to 2 Samuel chapters 15 through 17, you can read about the time that David fled from Absalom, his son. Let me just summarize. David has multiple sons, but Absalom uh, decides he wants to be king rather than his father. And he spends multiple years laying the groundwork, and by the time he goes into outward rebellion, he has already won the hearts of the majority of Israel's nobles. And so when he declares himself king rather than David, uh, the vast majority of Israel uh, goes with him. And word gets back to David, who's in the palace in the capital city of Jerusalem, that Absalom has declared himself king, and David hears who's on Absalom's side, and he realizes, "Uh uh-oh, I am way outnumbered, I'm way outgunned, I gotta run because they're, they're coming to kill me, and I can't stop them. And so David flees Jerusalem. He, is, he and his much smaller faithful cohort are, are fleeing certain death. He only leaves uh, behind. He leaves 10 concubines in the palace to take care of the palace, and he and everyone else, they flee. And while he is on the run from Absalom... When things are looking very dire, he pens Psalm 3. He cries out to the Lord for help. So we read verses 1 and 2. O Lord, how many are my foes! Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Here's the situation I'm in, Lord. I am way outnumbered. Look how many my foes are. Many are rising against me, which means uh, my foes are growing exponentially. Now that Absalom has declared himself in rebellion, uh, it seems like all kinds of people are flocking to his side. And so those who are against me are only increasing in number. I'm outmanned, I'm outgunned. A lot of people are coming for my head, Lord. And then this, which I think is even more significant for us today. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. I got a lot of enemies. They seem to be multiplying rapidly. And you know what they're saying about me? They're saying, I cannot expect any deliverance from God. Now, David's foes are fellow Jews. 
So there's no way they're saying God is impotent to help David. They're not making a, a theological statement about God's power. No, they, they worship Yahweh. They would never say God is uh, powerless. What they're saying is David cannot expect God to help him because God has abandoned David. God is no longer for David. God will not fight for David. This is their propaganda campaign that they're spreading around Israel. And I'm sure they were saying something like this. You remember how Saul lost God's favor and God removed the throne from Saul and gave it to David? Well, now David has lost God's favor and God has removed the throne and he's giving it to Absalom. David cannot expect God to fight for him. He has lost the favor of God. God has disowned him, has discarded him. Can you imagine uh, how that would have felt to David? I think that really uh, was a bigger, uh, a bigger deal to David than, than the fact that he's got a whole lot of enemies. Is there any truth to this claim that, that God has abandoned me and I can't expect help from him anymore? What might the rationale have been? What, what would David's foes been basing that argument on? Well, I think we get a glimpse of it in 2 Samuel chapter 16. We read this story that as David is, is uh, marching out of, or I should say fleeing out of Jerusalem, one of Saul's descendants by the name of Shimei comes out to gloat. And he hur hurls curses and abuse at David. So remember, Saul was the previous king. David took the kingdom from Saul. God had given it to him. Well, here's one of Saul's descendants who is obviously bitter and hates David and is so excited to see David finally you know, getting, getting his. 2 Samuel chapter 16, starting in verse 5. When King David came to Bahurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually. Just feel that coming out of him. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of David. I mean, this guy is so mad he doesn't care about his own life because they could have turned on him. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, and here it is, Get out! Get out, you man of blood, you worthless man! The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. So here's Shimei, and he's saying, David... You're getting what you deserve. God is punishing you because of your wickedness. God has removed the throne from you and he's giving it over to Absalom. And I'm sure that that was, you know, some of the, the argument, some of the rationale. They could have also said, hey, uh, David had Uriah the Hittite murder so he could take Bathsheba as his own wife. Hey, David uh, counted the armies of Israel against God's express command 
And as a result, God sent a pestilence upon the nation, and 70,000 men of Israel died. David is wicked. He keeps making bonehead, sinful decisions that are costing us as a nation, and frankly, he's gone too far, and God has now uh, disowned him. He's no longer God's anointed. And I have to think that that stung David, that that shook David. You see, there was some truth to this. The truth is that Absalom would not have rebelled against David if David had not killed Uriah the Hittite. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, God foretold through the prophet Nathan that this would happen. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, I'll start in verse 9. Nathan, is, Nathan has been sent by God to David. He says, David, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I'll do this thing before all Israel and before the son. One of the things that uh, Absalom did when he marched into Jerusalem is he took David's ten concubines and he erected a tent up on the top of the palace and then he took David's concubines into the tent in front of all Israel. And he did it publicly because he wanted to make a statement. I am taking over from dad. And I am uh, burning the ships. There is no chance that we will ever reconcile because what I'm doing right now will be such a stink in my dad's eyes. He'll never, we'll never be able to reconcile. So David, there's, there's no doubt David knew uh, What's happening to me, God foretold it, and it is uh, a consequence of my sin. Now, let me pause right there. Sometimes we find ourselves in a mess of our own making. And when we find ourselves in a mess of our own making, our enemy... Our foe, the evil one, tries to convince us that God is no longer for us. That God will not deliver us. That we will have no, uh, we should not bother trying to go get help from God because he has disowned us. And so it might be that you're broke because you did not... Uh, Rein in your spending impulses. It might be that you have cancer because you've been smoking. It might be that your child doesn't want to speak to you because you've been harsh with them. It might be that you're separated from your spouse because you've been unfaithful. It might be that you're suspended from school because you were found cheating. 
might be that your parents aren't trusting you anymore because you've been sneaking around on them behind their back. Might be that you've lost your job because you were stealing from your employer. Might be that you're in jail because you were selling drugs. The fact is, Christian people, sometimes we find ourselves in a mess of our own making. And as a pastor, uh, I have noticed that when I counsel Christians in that situation, and I ask them, are you praying and asking God to help you? So often, they, they say, well, not really. Why not? He's your greatest resource. Well, here's the reason. They have, they've, they've, they've begun to swallow the lie that, hey, you're in a mess of your own making. You're here because of your own sin. God is not for you right now. You can't expect any deliverance from God. You, you made your bed. You're going to sleep in it. If you're going to get yourself, you know, you're on your own. If you're going to get out of this, you've got to get out on your own. That is, a, that, is a, that is propaganda from the evil one. That is a lie from Satan. Don't buy it. Verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Here is David rehearsing truth, combating the lie that his foes are spreading with truth. And what's the truth? Here's what David understood. And this is so important that we understand God disciplines his children. He never disowns us. God disciplines his children. He never disowns us. And that's the, that's the truth that David uh, understood, and it made all the difference. David, David could say, yes, I am being disciplined by God. In some sense, I brought this on myself. But... God has not revoked the covenant he entered into with me. You see, God had entered into a covenant with David in which he said, David, you are my anointed king of Israel. And yes, you have sinned, but your sin does not revoke the covenant. Child of God, God has entered into a covenant relationship with you through your faith in his son, Jesus Christ. You are his child. And your sin, no matter how bad your sin is, does not break the covenant. And because David was in a covenant relationship with God, he knew, I am, despite my sin, I'm still the anointed. And as a result, God will hear my cry for deliverance. He will restore me to the throne. And my foes are not only rebelling against me, they're rebelling against God himself. And so when you find yourself in a mess of your own making, you've got to remind yourself of the great truth, I still have a heavenly father. I am still a child of God. Even if I'm in jail because I've been selling drugs, if I'm a Christian, God is still my heavenly father and therefore I can still pray to him. 
and I can still expect him to deliver me and expect him to love me in the midst of my mess. That is a game changer. So he rehearses this truth. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Let's not miss the obvious. David is in need, and so he cries out to God. And so when we find ourselves in a, in a mess, cry out to the Lord. Do it out loud even. God, I need you. Please come. Restore my marriage. Please come. Heal my relationship with my kid. Lord, please help me to uh, learn to do my work without needing to cheat. Cry out to the Lord. He will answer. Now, what is it that David uh, cries out? I think verse 7 tells us what he cries out. Verse 7, he says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek and break the teeth of the wicked. Other translations are uh, a little bit more direct. He's based, he doesn't say, for you strike. He's saying, do it, right? Give them the old one-two, punch him on the face, smack him in the teeth, right? Now, some commentaries uh, try to soften this and say, well, uh, David's not being vengeful. He's, he is envisioning himself as caught in the mouth of the lion, and so you've got to break the teeth of the lion so he can escape. Maybe. Uh, I think David is saying, God, these guys are rebelling against me. Fight them. Punch them in the face. Stop them. But at least David leaves vengeance into the hands of the Lord, right? David is not trying to... He's saying, you, God, please uh, repay them for their wickedness. I mean, they're rebelling against the king. So David has said, Lord, here's my situation. He's rehearsed the truth, and he's cried out to the Lord, God, please come rescue me. And now, I love what he does next, verse 5. I lay down... And slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. How, how easy do you think it would have been? How easy would it be for you if there's this big army not far away uh, wanting your head, and they're chasing you, and they're, they're trying to get a hold of you and kill you? Is that a time to lie down and take a nap? No way, man. You'd be up. I would. Strategizing. And so here's David. I lay down and slept. He had to make a choice to lie down in, in that time. And I think that was a supreme act of faith. I think he's saying, God, at the end of the day, uh, whether I am rescued or not is all about you. Are you going to rescue me or not? If I'm going to be delivered, it's got to come from you, so I'm going, to, I'm going to lie down and leave it in your hands. Now, when you read 2 Samuel 15, 16, 17, you realize David, it's not that David did nothing. He sent Hushai uh, back to Absalom and said, hey, please 
tell Absalom you're on his side and then give him bad counsel and try to thwart the counsel of Ahithophel. And he divided his uh, armies into three and he appointed uh, captains over each third of the army. And he, so he was doing stuff. But here we see David is saying, look, uh, I lay down and slept. I put myself in God's hands, in his care. And guess what? I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. David's faith was not misplaced. God took care of him, kept him safe even when he did nothing, even when he was sleeping. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Hear that cry of faith? I don't care if there are thousands and thousands of people. Even if I'm totally outnumbered, I'm not going to be afraid. Because it's never the size of the enemy. It's always the size of our God. And the enemy can be, it doesn't matter how many thousands the enemy is. It doesn't matter how big the dead is. It doesn't matter how long you've been enslaved to the sin. It doesn't matter the size of the enemy. What matters is the size of God who always dwarfs the foe. Sometimes lying down in the midst of our mess can be an act of faith. So are, are you in a mess? Maybe a mess of your own making? What might lying down look like? Maybe it means I'm going to give up the lawsuit. Maybe it means I'm going to stop haranguing to, tra to change them. What does, what does lying down look like in your situation? Finally, verse 8. Here, David sort of sums up his, his theo theological stance. Salvation belongs to the Lord. God has the power to deliver. It's, it's his decision. If he's going to deliver then I'll be delivered. It, it belongs to him. It's all in his hands. It's his choice. If he chooses to, to save me, my enemies can't stop him. Your blessing beyond your people, I think here he's saying, God's people have the, the right to go to their father and ask for deliverance and expect God to act on their behalf. What a glorious truth. God can save, and he wants to save his children. So to take, here's the takeaway question. Is there a mess in my life into which I'm not inviting God because I've swallowed the lie that God is no longer for me? Is there a mess in my life into which I am not inviting God because I've swallowed the lie that God is no longer for me? Spit the lie out. Embrace the truth that if you're a Christian, you have a heavenly Father whose ear is always open to you, whose heart is always bent toward you, who can and wants to deliver you.
Let me end with a statement uh, Pastor Steve Holsinger used to make that I just think is so profound. When you find yourself in a mess, give God something to bless. This is profound. When you find yourself in a mess, and we all do, and sometimes it's a mess of our own making, give God something to bless. Cry out to him. Turn to him. Run to him. He'll bless that. Let's pray.